culture of innovation. We interview exceptional leaders who embrace and demonstrate innovation, hear their stories, and listen as we explore turning ideas into tangible ways to create value and cultivate innovation as a way of life. Listen and be inspired as an innovative leader. Together, we shape culture and change the world. Culture of Innovation is brought to you by Ridge Innovative, where we practice innovation as a purpose to help companies use technology and breakthrough strategies to achieve business outcomes. And I'm your host, Nancy Ridge. And today, I am especially excited to introduce you to two young women who I could call future leaders. However, they are already leading and innovating. But before we get to their amazing stories, I would just like to take a moment and recognize how I came to meet them through an organization called AspireToSteam.org. AspireToSteam.org, which was originally established as Mission Sisters Who Work, is a 501c3 nonprofit that provides STEAM scholarships. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, STEAM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Mathematics. And they provide these STEAM scholarships and mentoring to young women and girls faced with barriers to achieving the training, certification, and college education that they so deserve. And it was founded by my friends, Cheryl and Mark O'Donohue. Some of you may know Cheryl. She is the author of a number of best-selling books, like How to Be a Woman in Technology While Focusing on What Matters Most. And she's also well-known as a thought leader in the area of emotional intelligence. And because I get to be a board member for this amazing organization, I want you all to know that we're always seeking support to provide scholarships to extraordinary young women like Janita and Sarah Hasi. Today, there is a simple act that I'm going to ask all of you to do towards funding our efforts. We are one of eight nonprofits that's been selected to compete for a grand prize of $10,000 donation via the Brave IT Awards, which is sponsored by TierPoint. And second and third winners also receive $5,000. Plus, when we were nominated for this year's Brave IT Award, we received a much appreciated $2,000 donation from the award program sponsor. So thank you for that. But I do ask you listeners to please take a moment, go to web.tierpoint.com slash Brave IT Award 2021 vote and vote. It would mean so much to us and also to some very deserving young ladies. So now the fun stuff. Please allow me to introduce Janita Chohan. She is a senior at Texas A&M University where she uses her engineering instincts and skills including, by the way, an intense passion for efficiency and improvement to create solutions to the world's most pressing issues. In December of 2019, she worked with other engineering students to design a water system for a rural community in Honduras, which she's going to tell you more about later. During the pandemic with Travel Halted, she led a research project that will be extremely beneficial to incident management teams and first responders, especially with the extremities of the virus and future public health crises that we face. She presented her research at the largest student research symposium in the nation and was awarded first place in the engineering undergraduate competition. She is on track to graduate in May of 2022. Yay! <laughs> and I can't wait to have her tell you more of her story directly. Welcome, Janita. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is an honor, and I'm really looking forward to some exciting conversations. Thank you. Me too. Me too. And now um, I'm also excited to introduce Sirihasa Nalamuthu. And she is a high school junior from Normal, Illinois. And at 15, are you still 15, Siri Hassa? Uh, yeah, I just turned 16 last month. So ah. pretty. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> what day? What day is your birthday? Uh, July 28th. Fantastic. Well, I hope that you had a big celebration. So now at 16, 
She already possesses a mind-boggling array of coding skills and has used her passion for coding to teach girls grades 5 through 11 languages, including Python, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and others. And she's used her algorithm knowledge in creating a convolutional neural network, CNN, to expedite COVID-19 diagnosis and has done some really exciting research and presented pretty extensive findings in ophthalmology, creating neural networks for diagnosing fundus and retinal diseases, which, oh, thank you. Uh, Sirahasa has some YouTube videos out there, which we'll share in our notes on the podcast for listeners to look into a little deeper. But for now, just thank you for being with us today, Sirahasa. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be talking to two amazing ladies, and I'm really excited that I found the Aspire to Seem organization um, for giving me this opportunity in the first place. Well, I can't imagine two more deserving young women. And I want to start by just acknowledging that in spite of these amazing accomplishments that you've already had, that you are still just, um, or were, in the case of Jamita, she's, you know, you're 20 now, right? 21, actually. 21. But time is going by so fast. <laughs> it's hard to have- believe so many things have gone by. And just um, the course of a few years for me, which is really um, college, Yeah, it goes fast, doesn't it? It's amazing. And time just seems to speed up the older you get. I hate to tell you gals. But, you know, I mean, in spite of being, you know, just these normal young ladies who have the same constraints and barriers as others, in fact, maybe more. I mean, you know, acknowledging, number one, you're young, you're females, uh, young women of color even, and are either of you the first in your families to go to college? Uh, I would be the first in my family to go to college here in the um, U.S. Yeah, similar to myself, um, I have an older sister who would be the first in my family to go to college. But um, my father has a degree from India. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's really remarkable to me that, you know, I want to just go back to being young and female and in the tech world, because uh, as I'd shared with you too, in in kind of our pre-conversation, you know, I have a passion for young women and women in general in tech, because, you know, whenever you're in that environment, you know, you face a little bit of a barrier, right? I mean, we've all experienced it to some degree, but in spite of all that, uh, you've been able to overcome. You've had this ability to just go beyond those barriers. And certainly, you know, as I shared a little bit in the intro to innovate, you push through. And I want to start by just asking, like, as your face, as you face those barriers, you know, how do you push through? And I'd love for both of you to answer this question. Um, I guess I can go ahead and start. Okay. Um, so this is Janita and for myself, pushing through barriers, as you've said, is something that really resonates with me. Um, because even living in the environment that I've grown up in, um, I've grown up in experiencing two different cultures and trying to navigate, Mm -hmm. um, two different cultures and a new country for my parents. Mm. Um, so especially knowing that I'm a really ambitious person, sometimes the things I have pursued are different or out of the ordinary. Um, but for me, I push through because I know that I can make an impact and achieve whatever it is I set out to do, regardless of whatever that so-called definition is of what I'm supposed to do, what society and people and the world thinks I should do. And whenever I push through a new challenge or a new goal, I essentially know that I'm pushing down those barriers, not only for myself, um, but it's going to be an inspiration for someone else. And that's really what keeps me going. 
That's great. It's been an inspiration for me already. And I find it interesting. And I think that's um, kind of a key uh, quality that many women have that's unique that we always think about when we're pushing through a barrier for ourselves, how it impacts others. So I love that. I love that. Sarahasa, what do you think? Yeah, so for me, I get through barriers um, when I innovate by just listening to my inner passion and like what drives me. So I just sort of listen to what I want to do. It's never about anybody else really when I innovate. It's about how I'm going to approach a problem and how I'm going to take a look um, at this, how I'm going to take a look at the problem I'm facing. And I sort of just let the inner fire, I guess, that's how I would phrase it, that I have drive me. And also knowing that I'm not alone. Um, I've been blessed with such a great community and a strong supportive network at school that pushed me to be better and that pushed me through these barriers. So um, just knowing that I'm not alone and there's always someone out there, whether it's on the internet or in my community that's in the same position as me or is trying to come, is trying to overcome a barrier. Um, so yeah, and also learning how to take a break when I need to. So <laughs> burning out is something that I um, just recently experienced. So just learning how to listen to myself and step away and go on a bike ride or um, hang out with friends when I need to um, really helps me come back and approach a problem at a different perspective and tackle it at, um, in a different way. So just learning how to take breaks and destigmatizing taking breaks for me. At <laughs> I think... Um, Sarah Hossa, that's a really great point you mentioned about burnout um, because it does happen and people like me and you, I'm a very person that likes to keep going. Like, let me do this and this and this. There's never a stopping point or a break in between where you really think about um, yourself and realize that, hey, it's time to give a little time back. Mm -hmm. um, 30 minutes or an hour or whatever, um, thinking about yourself and something away from that really go, go, go. Right. I mean, we're human beings. We're not robots, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the other thing I heard that you both kind of mentioned that I really love is putting aside perhaps, you know, the expectations of others. It sounds as if that really isn't uh, a barrier for you trying to live up to someone's expectations. Yeah, I think in the beginning, it was when I first started coding and learning, it was more about um, what other people wanted me to do. So whether I was learning in a class, it's about what the teacher wanted us to do or um, whether I was, you know, learning through a course. But as I went on to innovate um, and learn more coding skills, I sort of focused on how I'm going to approach a problem. Like there's no set rules to innovate. It's always, you just got to have the passion and the drive and the ability to problem solve. So just focusing on how you are going to attack a problem, um, as opposed to thinking about what other people think of you. Right. Right. And I like, um, too, that you mentioned, uh, not having to do it alone. And that's something that, uh, Janita, you talked to me about, uh, before too, which we're going to dive into deeper, but, uh, it's very interesting. There's a, a lady named uh, Dr. Carol DeWick that wrote a book a few years back called The Growth Mindset. And in her work, what she found was that people who had innovative or growth-oriented uh, thinking typically were very much engaged in identifying with others and being part of, being a part of, as opposed to having to carry the burden all themselves in any way, shape, or form. So I think that is a, a great point that we all get to look at that example and go, you know what, we aren't alone. We choose not to be. So I have to admit, though, reading your news releases makes me feel a little inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that is one of the, the first things that can keep us from innovating. Um, there's something in the spirit of each one of you, that inner fire, that passion uh, that causes you to innovate, innovate. And people, you know, in this world do struggle to innovate, yet within you is that secret. Um, 
And what do you do? Now you talked a little bit about taking a break, but I'm going to dig deeper. What do you do when you go through a tough period? For example, uh, we talked a little bit about imposter syndrome. How do you push through something like that? Um, so for myself, pushing through uncertainty and imposter syndrome really was a huge challenge. Um, and I will even admit that I am still learning how to. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are those are some of the challenges I face every day, whether it be in my job or internship or school or um, family and relationships. Um, and it's something that I'm learning and I still continue to learn. But like Sirahasa said earlier, one thing that I've come to realize um, is that I'm passionate about what I'm doing. Um, and I need to take that inner fire and keep pushing through. Um, another thing is that I know for certain that I've been put into a certain position or a place because I'm adequate and I'm able to do that. Not because, because somebody has, um, that trust in me, they know like, Hey, Janie thought she's capable of this, even though I might not have realized it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that I wouldn't have gotten there if someone else, that person was doubting my abilities or my potential. And I saw that so many of my peers, professors, family, friends, um, and like colleagues saw that potential when I was blinded by this sort of curtain that was imposter syndrome and pushing through has helped me learn so much that I always have a support system there. Um, and I think one of my strongest assets is really not what's up in my brain, but it's that support system that helps me realize that, Hey, what are you thinking? That's crazy. Like, don't, don't go and think that you're not adequate or you're not able. Um, and seeking out those mentors in really everything I do has been an amazing journey and an amazing experience. Every time that I've come and I'm confused when I have doubts or issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I really love the point about having, like, you're there for a reason. You're there because someone believed in you, and you're there because you have you have the qualities and you have the skills to succeed. So um, I always just, yeah, I also keep that in mind um, when I struggle with imposter syndrome. And I feel like ever since I first got LinkedIn, which was the beginning of high school, looking at every looking at people in high school who are on like similar trajectories at me and looking at their profile sort of started making me feel a little bit inadequate. Um, and I just have learned to take a break from looking at people's profiles and I've learned that um, and I've learned that someone else's successes are not my failures. I can always use them as an example. I can always use them as an inspiration and sort of strive to be them. So, yeah. And um, I think last week, Nancy and I were talking about imposter syndrome. And you mentioned that people who or women who do innovate struggle with the syndrome the most. So it's really interesting to see um, that in practice and see the different perspectives. So true. You know, women are often still conditioned to be perfect in many cultures. And we're taught to trust other people's opinions of us. And yet, you know, what I found is that one of the answers is to just accept and acknowledge what we know and what we don't know and build relationships with the people who have the expertise or the knowledge that we don't possess. That's where, you know, we get that, that we element that we just talked about you know, that we don't have to do it alone. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, looking at those LinkedIn pages, the trap there is that comparison and recognizing that we're unique. Our our contribution is ours. And, you know, comparing what we're doing to someone else isn't, you know, isn't really working in that growth mindset type of thinking. You know, it, it's too fixed. It, there's not enough freedom there. <laughs> Sarah Hassa, um, one thing I want to like mention 
for me, it's a huge, um, like inspiration. Like it feels a really big deal to even have this conversation with you. Um, and the way you're mentioning like, oh, LinkedIn profiles and stuff like that. Um, especially in this day and age as social media has gotten to be such a huge part of our daily lives, um, and everybody around the world really. But I don't think I could have ever said the things you're saying back when I was 16. Um, and it's taken me so long to realize some of these things. And for me, it's it's been more recently than not um, after college, um, mm-hmm. after I started my school at Texas A&M. And again, as I mentioned, those mentors who have had to say that, no, Janita, like, what are you thinking? Um, so having this conversation with you is it just feels great knowing that, hey, you've learned those things so early on. Yes, yes. It just feels so great talking to both of you just to know that I'm not alone. Everybody feels this. It's completely normal. And um, there's always ways to go around it. There's always a different way to think about it. So it's been really mm-hmm. eye-opening so far. Well, that's why, you know, when I was um, promoting this podcast out there on the web, I was like, hey, are you ready for some hope and inspiration? Because, you know, the women of my generation, we didn't even have a name for this. You know, we went through our whole lives. So, Janita, you know, it makes me super excited to hear you at 21, you know, having this advantage, too. And I really want the two of you to tell some of your stories because you both have amazing stories about the work um, that you're that you've done and that you're doing and these projects. Um, And, you know, Janita, when we talked, you kind of inspired me further when I asked about, you know, the experiences that really shaped you. And you said, you know, it was a culmination of things. So I would love it if you would just share a little bit, you know, just tell uh, whatever story you'd like to tell. I mentioned the Honduras uh, story. That's a great story. But, you know, please share with us really to describe, you know, uh, an experience that's kind of brought you along in your problem solving. Yeah, um, I'd love to actually. So as I mentioned, um, well, innovation for me, if you had asked me three years ago, maybe when I was graduating high school, the words sound very scary. Um, More than anything else, it sounded scary, um, maybe a little bit exciting, but scary than anything else. And the way I think about it is like, it's a passion that drives you there. Um, And it took me a very long time to realize that passion um, and lose that fear Um, and that's really what makes this culture of innovation so exciting because everybody can have a different definition of it. And it's really what we search for and what we go to seek out and pursue that changes that definition for everybody. Um, so for myself that it really was a culmination of experiences that had me learn um, what my culture of innovation was and what my definition of innovation was and how I want to innovate. Um, And that was through really putting myself out there and participating in so-and-so project team and club and organization and extracurricular activity. And I realized that so many of the things I was doing were really rooted in international travel, international um, experiences and helping others in that way. Um, Not global citizenship. Yeah. Global citizenship is a perfect way to put it. And it wasn't, it wasn't for tourism. I realized that wow, I really like to do these things I'm doing, but none of them are for tourism purposes. Mm -hmm. They're for helping others and really um, opening my mind and opening my, my, my mindset a little bit for what other places of the world have to offer and what I can offer. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
simply put, I think my secret to success and innovation would be that one word, passion. Um, I, I found my passion. It was those experiences that helped me find what I was doing. Um, and I personally find it very hard to believe that someone would be able to innovate and solve a problem, um, doing it well without having that strong passion for what they're doing. Um, while I was in Honduras, it was myself and a team of other students from Texas A&M University and Purdue University, whom I worked with. Um, by the way, this this trip was through Global Engineering Brigades. Um, it's a great organization and a great nonprofit um, to be able to get these experiences and really learn um, about other people and other cultures. But I was in Honduras with this team of other students and we all worked long days, exhausting days in the heat um, to design a water system for a village that lacked their own independent water source. So hard um, to imagine that really, you know, in our culture, it's like, wow, but it, you know, it's not uncommon. Exactly. Um, and like, for me, I didn't realize, and I don't know if it was ignorance or um, really what it was, but I, it was hard to believe that there was still a community of people in what were we at the time, 2019, this was before COVID, um, 2019 that still lacked access to water. And you like, mentioned there was a political, there was a, you mentioned there was like a political um, issue tied to it as well, right? Yes. Um, so this village was dependent on um, a larger city, um, if you could call it, they were dependent on this larger city for their water. So for example, if that, if that larger entity was mad at them or they had like a political rift, their water could get shut off and they didn't know if it could happen. Um, and the people living in this village were, were dependent their day-to-day -day lives on little things like, Hey, if my husband can't go and work out in the fields today, we might not have money tomorrow. Um, we might not be able to feed the family today. We might not be able to get water tomorrow. Um, and it was, it was literally a day to day thing. Um, and all that being said, the team that I went with, we ended up, um, surveying this entire village, which was huge, by the way, I don't remember geographically, um, how large, but it was huge um, on different elevations, different geographies. There weren't paved roads. Um, we mapped the elevation from the tank to the source by foot and designed this whole water system within the course of five days. Um, and all of that being said, I don't think any of the work that we did as this group of, I believe it was around 20 students, um, all from different backgrounds, by the way, I don't think any of that would have even been possible had even one of us not been passionate about the end goal um, and not been passionate about the work we were doing, how we were helping these people. And for me, really, to summarize, that experience was so eye-opening more than anything else because I saw how many aspects of my daily life that I take for granted yeah. Um, whether that be having Wi-Fi and cellular service everywhere I go or <laughs> access to running water to drink or wash my hands or brush my teeth or go to the restroom, even in public places. Um, those villagers didn't have that. And they were really some of the happiest people I have ever met in my life. Um, I have never seen so much joy um, legitimate joy and not a, not a care in the world about what's going on and what so-and-so did or what politics or really anything in these people, they were just so happy. Um, yet they, again, as I mentioned, they were living in this situation where they didn't know what tomorrow would bring. 
They didn't know what they, what food they would have on the table tomorrow. They didn't know um, if they were going to get water. They didn't know if they were going to be able to work yet. They were so happy. Um, the biggest smiles and the strongest people, both physically and mentally and emotionally I've ever met. Amazing. That, that is some pretty uh, broad perspective that uh, will ground you quickly. And what I loved about the story too, you mentioned five days is that you saw the problem that needed solving and you and the team dove in without delay. And, you know, being able to do that, to innovate in that way, unencumbered in such a rapid fashion, you know, this is something that many businesses today are still unable to do. Um, Thank you so much for not just sharing the technical part of that story, but also what I will call the spiritual part of that story about the people that you saw there and, and the you know, those principles of gratitude and joy that you got to experience, you know, from a group of people who, you know, by Western accounts were lacking and yet they were not lacking. <laughs> they, no. had, they had abundance. <laughs> they, they had abundance, abundance, abundance. I could not stress that enough. And even, um, thank you for like letting me share because as I'm speaking to y'all right now, Um, for me, I'm feeling these like nostalgic uh, memories, almost wishing I could go back and see those people again. Um, it was, it was almost rejuvenating, um, because we think over here, we have all of these problems and I got to get this done. I need to do this. Oh, this crazy thing happened class and school and car and job and work. And, but it was it was a moment to forget everything going on and look at this, um, look at this so broadly, um, life and how we value it really. Mm -hmm. It's that other aspect to innovation. And, and, you know, uh, I'm going to segue because that's like a perfect segue to Siri Hassa because um, your stories too, I know you have such a strong interest in healing and helping people you know, from a physical standpoint. And, you know, I'd love for you to share the story about the algorithm uh, that helped speed up the diagnosis for COVID. But more importantly, I'm also just completely fascinated by the work that you have already undertaken in terms of these retinal ailments. And, you know, and even, you know, from that standpoint, you know, the global aspect of that story, too, with your cooperation with the Shanghai Medical Center. And, and so tell us more about that, Siri Hassa, how you yeah. how you kind of tackled those problems and just saw them and said, OK, I'm just going in. I'm going to see what I can do to solve this. Yeah. So I first got interested in machine learning, which is, I think, a pretty new field definitely grow like it's a definitely rapid and growing field in ninth grade and i realized there was so much i didn't know about it and so much i wanted to know about it so i worked hard for all of ninth grade and learned like python the basics of coding the basics of computer science like how i can use those principles to connect it back to health technology because my, what I envision for the future, at least, is a place where people will just be able to go down to their own basements and under, um, and have like a little tech station that uses machine learning and um, medical algorithms to figure out what's wrong with them so they know what um, so they know what ailments they have or they know what's wrong with them before they go to the doctor's office and hopefully save um, money, time, um, you know, things like that. So it's definitely going to hopefully happen in the future where um, hospitals will be completely computerized and completely tech-based. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. But um, yeah, so as soon as I learned ML and as soon as I learned, you know, the basics of like Python that goes into it, I started looking more into building something called a convolutional neural network, which is basically a really fancy way of saying an image classifier. And it takes images And it takes huge, like large data sets of thousands of images, and it looks for the key features in them. So, for example, if you were building a classifier between dogs versus cats, um, 
in the dog's data set, the model would look for like floppy ears, um, large, uh, long tails, fur. Um, but in the cat's data set, the model would look for a triangular nose, um, shorter fur, tones of grays and um, yellows, so things like that. So my idea was I built a couple of neural networks, but the thing that I worked on the most, which was um, all of last year, is building neural networks to diagnose fundus diseases and using something called model stacking to streamline them. So I first got interested in this when um, I externed an ophthalmology company in summer of 2020, and I realized that uh, the solutions they had, they were super advanced and super cool, except they were very expensive. Like it cost 30000 or sometimes 20000 just to get access to these tools. Mm. So I wanted it. So I wanted to make it more accessible and sort of have it so like regular people would be able to access like a $35 device and diagnose their retinal ailments or keep mm -hmm. track of what's going on in their retinal health. So, um, yeah, so that was definitely a huge and ambitious goal. But the way I look at projects is I, I'm sure everybody does this, but they break it down into steps. So the first thing I needed was data, which is hugely important in the world of machine learning. And I never realized that until, um, until last year. So I never realized that you actually need like tons of curated data to make a good model. And I think that realization just sunk in when I worked for two months to get together this data set. Two so months. Yeah, two months. And that's another thing. Like for me, I'm sort of a person that wants things to go like get rolling and get done and, you know, like um, not slow down. But it, innovation does take time. Doing research takes time. And that's still something I'm learning. So, um yeah, I used to be like, oh, two months to get data. But now I'm like, wow, that's a really short time span to get data. But um, yeah, I worked with the, the Shanghai Medical Center had tons of unsorted fundus data online. So I took all of those fundus images, which, um, by the way, the fundus is the back of your eye, basically, um, where doctors would look to see um, if certain veins were um, were already or if you had certain ailments. So I took all of that data and I wrote like tons of files of code to process them and put them in data sets and reorganize them. And um, yeah, it was definitely a process. I learned so much from it. Um, yeah, it, it definitely took a while, which is something I'm still wrapping my head around. Um, but yeah, once I had the data, I trained seven convolutional neural networks um, and the main diseases they diagnosed was trachoma, which is actually an under eye disease. So it's like bacteria inside of your eye, basically. Um, I diagnosed myopia, acute macular degeneration, cataracts, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, and other fundus ailments. And I was able to get my models to um, around 98, 96% accuracy. Um, and I was able to actually test these out and show that they worked. Like if I was, if I were to pass in an image from a test data set per se, it would give me an accurate answer and an accurate response. So that was really exciting for me. I never, um, I've never worked with machine learning in depth before that. So to be able to create something that actually works was super cool to see. So, so cool. Yeah, and I was able to build sort of a device to go along with that and it's still I'm still developing it so it's um, definitely still a work in progress but the models and the algorithms that would actually be used to um, deploy this into the medical field are done so I could technically now that I have proof of concept especially with model stacking which is where I streamline an image um, which is where I streamline an image through all the models I created I could technically prevent present this proof of concept to someone in the medical field and hopefully get it implemented. So, yes. yes. Again, you know, so, so much hope and inspiration. And, and again, even though you talk about, you know, how long it took really, you know, with the use of the technology, the machine learning, you know, I know that that cut the time down. It actually made it possible in the past, yeah. you know, you wouldn't have been able to, uh, you wouldn't have been able to assemble all that data into any usable format 
without the machine learning. And somehow as you're sharing the story, you know, I'm seeing a relationship between what you're talking about and Janita's experience into Honduras. It's like, you know, what if you, you, you mentioned like, what about the day when you can go to your basement and do this? Well, what about the day when you can take something like, you know, the CNN, uh, work that you've done, I don't even know how to describe it succinctly, <laughs> and and help people in Honduras. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, that's that's the accessibility where you don't have the very expensive tests and need all the equipment, and yet it could be utilized to help so many people. So, you know, I just, I don't know, I just got that little relationship while you were talking just now. Yeah, and I think a cool relation between me and Janita's like stories with innovation is accessibility. Um, she made water more accessible to um, people in Honduras. But for me, I was only able to use these practices of machine learning because someone else made it accessible to me. Um, in previous years, I don't really think high schoolers would ever be given the opportunity to work with these tools. Mm -hmm. But because there are so many awesome online resources and because there are life-saving sites like Stack Overflow, I'm able to do projects like these. So yeah, I should Brilliant. say thank you to everybody who innovated and gave me the accessibility to do this before me. Absolutely brilliant. So one common characteristic I see uh, within each of you is that is just absolutely extraordinary is that you are not afraid to make mistakes and that you innovate, that you iterate very quickly. And that iterative environment appears to be one that you're pretty comfortable in. And you may not realize how extraordinary that is. <laughs> Um, what advice do you have for those in the workforce, maybe uh, just for humanity in general, to adopt this mindset in order to innovate with purpose? I'll, the question's out there to both of you. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll go first this time. Um, so innovating with purpose, uh, that's a pretty vague topic, but I would say um, Something that my teachers always say to me is fail fast and fail often. So learning how to document your failures and learning how to um, figure out what you did wrong before is super helpful in innovation. And it makes sure it's, and it makes sure that you don't face that same issue or face that same error before. So what I would do whenever I faced a roadblock in my machine learning journey was I'd keep a giant log of errors. So any code error that I would get, um, basically anything related to my project, I would write about it and I'd write about what I did to solve it. And that definitely streamlined the process more because I faced so many of the same errors at different points in my journey, often like three or four months apart. And it was super useful for me to look at um, and it made the innovation process faster. Um, yeah, so that's my perspective on it. I completely agree with you there, Sarah Hasa. There were some great things that you mentioned. Um, and going alongside that, I think um, I would say not everyone innovates the same way. And that's, that's one key thing for um, everyone to really know that you're not going to follow the same path or innovate the same way, do the same or similar things as somebody else. Um, and I think for others, I would push somebody else asking me this question to say, find, find a cause that you resonate with and find a problem that you truly want to change and stick to it. Um, surrounding, surrounding yourself with peers and mentors and essentially that support system that pushes you out of your comfort zones in the right way is something that I could not, I could not say more strongly. Um, that support system, like Sierra also mentioned her teachers and her community. Um, and for me, it was my friends, my family and my peers um, who pushed me further. And that, that's really um, what kept me going. And another thing I would like to mention is that innovating with purpose is a worthwhile endeavor, but it's also a challenge that is extremely rewarding and fruitful at the same time. Um, 
knowing that you're not going to be successful the first time and that there's so many retries along the way um, is great to remember. But if you're passionate, the end goal will always be worth it. Mm. Always. 100%. Oh, that's such a cool way to look at it. Another thing I was going to mention, like Janita mentioned, with finding a purpose and finding a thing to look at to innovate. Um, one thing that helped me was just reading articles and staying tuned into the world that happened around me. At least for me as a high school student, it's very easy to get caught in this bubble of, oh, taking classes, turning in homework, and um tuning out what's happening around me, like what's happening in the news. So just taking like 10 or 15 minutes a day to read about news in the medical field or developments in the science field was really helpful for me when I was trying to, um, when I was finding projects or when I was looking at different ways that people innovated. Mm -hmm. That perspective comes back again. And, and I want to add too. you know, I love, I love both of the comments that you two have made and, and, I relate to them as well. And for me, part of what I found is that I can have fun in this process too. You know, when I'm surrounding myself, uh, Janita, as you mentioned, with with peers and mentors and, you know, that support system, you know, like Sarah Hasa, you talked about your teachers and, you know, your families who encouraged you, you know, go ahead and experiment, make a mistake, it's okay. You know, when I can... Uh, when I can open myself up to that, I find that people are willing to provide that type of support when I'm asking for it. And then I can actually have fun in the process. I think, you know, oftentimes adding that element of fun can be one that we miss, but that can be so inspiring. <laughs> and, and, and it allows me anyways to, to make those mistakes and, and be light about it, to realize that, you know, um, as you said earlier, we don't necessarily have to follow any particular rules. You know, we can go ahead and, and, you know, when we're innovating, make our own rules. And if it's like, okay, I made a mistake, I'm just going to look at that as another step on the journey. And I was doing it with someone that I enjoy being with. So let's just call it fun and move on. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people do miss, like, or do miss talking about like when you do research and when you do innovate and when you code, it's important to have fun and realize that you're doing this so you can have fun as well. So I just like to blast music when I code. I know some people can't focus <laughs> when they listen to music, but I just like blast Ariana Grande and and just do that while I code. That's so awesome. That's <laughs> Uh, that's amazing, as you mentioned that, because it's definitely having fun, having fun, it would not be possible without having fun and really being all into it along the way. Um, again, like, yeah, we're humans. Um, <laughs> nobody can sit there and do the things we do and um, think as hard, that hard and concentrate um, like that without really being into it and all into it that way and having fun is so important being excited about what you're doing um is so important as well you bet and so since we're on the topic of fun i i would like to now ask you know what innovation would you most like to see gain adoption and it could be anything i've heard all kinds of answers when i ask i always ask all my guests this question so Ooh, who wants okay. to take, who wants to go first? <laughs> so for me, mine might be a little bit more weird, but um, I used to watch the show when I was younger called the Greenhouse Academy. And there, there was a device in it called the Lewis. And it was basically like a cooler version of the iPhone. Like it, um, it would like compress up into the size of a pen. And when you would open it up, it would be like a hologram and only you can see the hologram. So it's like a touchable interactive hologram and it's about the size of a pen and you can like carry it around with you, like the size of a stylus basically. And I've always wanted one of those so I could just like whip out, whip it out and open it and mess around with the hologram and then put it back in neatly and use it. So that might be a little bit weird, but it'd definitely be cool to see more hologram futuristic looking devices. <laughs> Hopefully Apple will be able to come up with something like that. 
<laughs> Sounds fun and beautiful. <laughs> I know you said yours, your idea sounds weird. I think I will take that one. Um, I mean, what I think I'm going to say is going to sound crazy. Y'all are going to be like, what is Janita thinking? Like, <laughs> out of everything you could say, um, something that comes to mind first for me with this question is I am almost obsessed with organizing and decluttering and stuff mm. like that, which is mm-hmm. a weird hobby. Should- but. <laughs> You should come to my room and do that for me. <laughs> exactly. I would be more than happy to. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's either a long process that's almost strenuous and stressful, depending on the extent of what you have to organize and declutter. Um, or like for for me, it's walking into my little brother's bedroom saying, oh my gosh, I wish I could fix this right now, but I can't. <laughs> so if there was like some kind of a device that existed that could like analyze what I envisioned for a space to be organized or like how I think I want it to be and then poof, decluttered, organized, beautiful, like I would be the happiest person. I think there's a lot of moms that would really agree with that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And, and I have to tell you, you know, it's kind of interesting that um, there's a, we talked about emotional intelligence and one of the pioneers in that work, uh, Harvard professor, I don't know why I can't think of his name off the top of my head right now. It'll come to me after we hang up, but (laughs) he talked about, you know, kids in particular that were gifted, that had, you know, these creative and I'll say innovative minds that very commonly their rooms were just like a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Because it just represented so much that was in their thinking and their mindset. And I had that issue with my two kids who were both creatives. And the advice was, you know, ask them to straighten it up once a week just for the sake of housekeeping and learning good habits. And the rest of the time, let her rip because that's an expression of creativity at some level. (laughs) I'm going to use that excuse on my mom now. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell her. I learned that on a podcast today. (laughs) Too funny. Well, ladies, it has been pure delight um, to chat with you. And I just can't wait to see what's next for both of you. So please keep us in touch. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, for most definitely. Thank you so much. Awesome. And thanks for our listeners for being with us today. And please don't forget to subscribe at iTunes to get updates on new episodes. And you'll also find us at www.soundcloud.com culture of innovation. And be sure to check us out on ridgeinnovative.com. Culture of Innovation is produced monthly, so do look for new episodes towards the end of each month, and I invite you all to have a breakthrough day. We'll see you next time.